Good morning, y'all. What's up? My name is Dylan Braddock, and I serve as a student coordinator here at the Story Church, and I am so glad you're joining us in person right now. Also, shout out to our Timber Grove congregation. Love you guys. What's up? And shout out to everyone joining us online. Uh, happy Labor Day weekend. Uh, it's fun. College football's back. I think all the Texas teams won yesterday, so that's awesome. Uh, started out the weekend really good. Uh, so as you can see, Pastor Eric is not up here preaching this morning. And I'm honestly not sure if it's because it's Labor Day weekend or because he read ahead and saw the sermon text for this week. Uh, this week we're talking about money. So instead of him doing it, he decided to leave his 28-year-old student coordinator to tell you guys how to spend your money. Uh, I knew I was in trouble this week because usually like Pastor Eric and Kale will pray for me. But like three or four people in the community, when they found out this is what I was preaching on, they like called me and prayed for me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like what am I stepping into here? Is this gonna be a bloodbath? Like, and uh, just to confirm my suspicions, I went online and typed in like least popular sermon topics and uh, money and tithing was like at the top. So here are some real reviews I found online for people on these sermon topics. So Rick from Columbus, he wrote in and said, my money is my own business. The church has no business asking for it. It's funny because my dad's name is Rick, and I'm pretty sure he said this, but he's not from Columbus. Uh, up next, we have Helen from Tallahassee. She said, yeah, yeah, we know, we know. Everything we have is God's, and we need to give it as an act of worship, blah, blah, blah. How about a sermon about not guilting your congregation to giving for a change? Noted. Thank you, Helen. Uh, and third and finally, we had Trinity from Rochester. And Trinity was a little clever with her response. She said, because if God created the universe, then what does he need with my money? Like he can make his own. Now, if I was getting good service, some rock and tunes, and it was in a bar, I would gladly pay. But church pastors are just greedy. All right. So I am in the middle of a hornet's nest. I see. Um, and some of you may relate to these comments. You may have thought them. Maybe you've never been so bold to say them, but I've thought similar things in the past as well. And I want you to feel that this morning you are not alone. I think when money comes up, a lot of us have like red flags because no one wants to hear a pastor telling you how to spend your money. The issue is if you read the gospels, uh, Jesus talks about money a lot. Like Jesus talks about money than almost any, more than anything else in the Bible. So if Jesus talked about it, then we have to talk about it. But if we talked about it as much as Jesus did, then I think none of y'all would be here. You wouldn't come here. So just a little bit. Um, but, but I get it. I mean, when I was a kid, we have a lot of students in here. When I was a kid, I remember every time they had a talk on money, I would just instantly grab the Bible in the pew in front of me and flip it to a random page and start reading because I knew whatever was in the Bible would be more relevant than the current sermon topic. So I feel you guys. And I want to acknowledge that awkwardness that comes with money. But before you guys in the room tune me out or those at Timbergrove Timber go upstairs for an early brunch or those online literally turn me off, like, please just check in and listen for a minute. Because my conclusion this morning isn't going to be, let's give more money so we can build a pickleball court for a student ministry. Even though that would be sick, and if you do want to donate money for a pickleball court, naming rights are on the table. I will name it after your family. It'll last forever. Uh, but no, today's sermon is not about money. It's really about the condition of our hearts. So let's open our Bibles to James chapter 5. 
If you've been with us the past couple of weeks, we've been doing this sermon series called Less Talking, More Walking, From Dead Religion to Dynamic Faith. And this is our last week in the book of James. And if you've been with us for a bit, you've heard me or Pastor Kale or Pastor Eric or maybe Meredith at Timbergrove tell you guys that James always comes out swinging. He doesn't pull his punches. And this week is no different. So I just want to prepare you guys before we read, okay? So James chapter 5, verse 1. James says, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Yikes. He goes in, right? And I was reading some Greek translations this week, and one of the translations I read translated this passage as, Burst into tears and howl with grief for the hardship that is coming to you. That's pretty intense, right? And, and James doesn't even couch it and say, like, the wicked rich or the sinful rich. He says, you rich, watch out. And man, if I was preaching this sermon like five or six years ago, I'd be scared to see what I would say. Because when I was in college, I was like many of us, and I had kind of this rebellious spirit. I mean, y'all might have gone through similar phases in college. And at that time, I was like really mad at Christians with money and really mad at like the pastors who had the private jets and all those things. And it was funny because at the time, my parents were paying for my college education, and I had a full ride scholarship paid by an endowment from the school, which was also given by generous people. But at the time, I just had this like spite towards the wealthy. And I confess, it, it was sinful, but part of me just like couldn't stand the rich because I'd read passages like this in the Bible and be like, what are you guys doing? You have to repent, turn around. Um, it was just this really bad spirit among me. Like at the time, I would like tell my friends, there's no way there can be such thing as a Christian millionaire. And I'd like high five them. And it was just that kind of group. It wasn't very healthy, wasn't very happy. So a few years ago, when I started here at The Story, things changed pretty quickly. Because before I was doing ministry in Waco, Texas, and Waco is a very average suburban community. And then I moved to Houston and started doing ministry in River Oaks in the middle of Houston. Uh, much different congregation, I'll say, I'll say that much. But over these last four years, it's been part of my healing process as I have started to view money in a healthier way. Because before, at one point in my life, I thought, and I'm being honest, this is bad, but I thought that most poor people were lazy and relied on government handouts. In another point in my life, I believed all rich people were selfish and cheated everyone else to get all their money. Both of those preconceptions were very sinful. And in both situations, I was equating someone's net worth or their personality based on how much money they made. Both those things were very arrogant and prideful. But being here at the story, I've been able to witness some of the wealthiest people I've ever met also being some of the most generous people I've ever met. And they don't only give their money, but they give their time and they give just their presence. Like we have CEOs who serve on our hospitality team. We have government officials who serve coffee. And they don't have to do that but they do it because God has given them so much that they want to give back. So this week, as I was trying to figure out what the heck am I going to say about money, I initially flipped to 1 Timothy 6.10, which 
which is probably one of the misquoted, mis- most misquoted verses in the entire Bible. You might have heard it said that money is the root of all evil, but that's not what 1 Timothy says. 1 Timothy says the love of money is the root of all evil. There's a difference there, right? It's about where your heart is at. Because money isn't intrinsically bad. Money is a tool. But the Bible seems to say the more money you do have, the more danger that's ahead of you. So watch out. As Americans, we, all of us, are some of the richest people in the entire world. Like, did you know that? The average U.S. household income is $63,000, which doesn't seem like that much. I mean, that's an okay amount of money. But just $63,000 puts us at the top 0.17% of the world in terms of wealth. Like the average American family makes more than 99.8% of the world. And that's just talking about here, today, and now. Imagine if you compare that with the entire course of human history. This means that all of us are in danger. I don't want this sermon to come off as like me attacking the rich. What I'm trying to say is that all of us can be considered wealthy, and every single one of us in this room needs to watch out. It doesn't matter if you're a CEO or a student coordinator or a teacher or a barista. In terms of the world and in terms of human history, All of us have an incredible amount of wealth. And the Bible says, if you do have that, you need to watch out. Sin is crouching like a lion and it is coming for you. So today, I wanna speak to us as a community, as someone who loves you guys, and as someone that hopes that together, we can find a better way to deal with money um, that honors God. So today we're gonna read James chapter five and talk about three dangers of wealth. Three dangers of wealth. And the first one is that wealth can corrode. Wealth can corrode. In verse two, you can read with me. James says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. So wealth corrodes, and this corrosion happens in two distinct ways. There's two ways that wealth corrodes. The first is that we are blind to the fact that our wealth corrodes beneath our eyes. In other words, it will always disappear. Your wealth, whatever you accumulate here on earth, it won't last forever. Me and my wife, we uh, had the privilege of going to the British Museum this summer which I think is one of the best museums in the world because they have everyone's stuff in one place. You can kind of see it all in one trip. Um, But one of our favorite rooms was the Egyptian room because I think mummies are fascinating, right? So we went up there and saw all these mummies and saw these sarcophaguses. And there was one area when they modeled a um, typical Pharaoh's burial chamber. And this burial chamber was insane, y'all. It had like uh, servants in there. There were pets that were mummified. There were vehicles, clothing, perfume. Like they basically buried this Pharaoh with everything he could ever need. And the reason they did that is because they believed whatever you were buried with, you would take with you to the next life. Like you would take it there with you. And 
Today, most of us aren't buried with our money. Like you don't see people just stuffing money into their, uh, their, when they're being buried. But I feel like some of us kind of live that way, right? We live like the things we accumulate here on earth will come with us. But the truth of wealth is that it always corrodes. Nothing we, take, nothing we make in this life comes with us to the next life. And wealth blinds us to that fact. But the second way and the more important way that wealth corrodes is that it corrodes the holder of wealth. It's like a poison. Because we as wealthy Christians get so comfortable that we're in danger of no longer relying on God and relying on God's provision. So instead, we rely on ourselves. And that is a corrosion of the spirit and a corrosion of our dependence on God. A practical way to think about this is the Lord's Prayer. Um, Some of y'all probably learned the Lord's Prayer growing up or said it. And part of the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread, right? And I remember teaching this prayer to a couple students a few years ago. And I said, when Jesus says your daily bread, he doesn't actually mean food. He's talking about your daily needs, like maybe a ride to and from school and maybe being on your baseball team. That's what Jesus is talking about. But as I was preparing my sermon this week, I realized, no, Jesus is literally talking about, give us our daily bread. In the context Jesus was preaching in, the people he was talking to, like food insecurity was their number one concern every day. These people literally didn't know where their food was gonna come from for that evening. So when they prayed this prayer, Lord, give us our daily bread, they were literally asking God to give them the food they needed today. But as wealthy Christians, it's really hard for us to pray that prayer, Lord, give me my daily bread when I have a pantry full of food. Or I have like 20 restaurants one mile from my house, right? I don't need to depend on God for food because I have H-E-B. Like I'm being serious. We don't have to depend on God for our daily needs when we already have everything we need. But that's how wealth corrodes. It corrodes the holder and everything we accumulate will rot corrode, and eventually disappear. And James isn't just pulling this sermon out of thin air. He is quoting Jesus. Often when James preaches, he either quotes Jesus, the Old Testament, and here he quotes Matthew 6, 19 through 21, which says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So James's first warning to us, his first warning to the wealthy, is wealth not only literally corrodes, but it corrodes the holder. And this corrosion of the heart affects our spiritual vitality, and it also affects the way we treat others. The second danger of wealth is wealth can exploit. Wealth can exploit. And once again, exploitation happens in two distinct ways. That'll be a pattern through the whole sermon. It happens in two ways. The first way is pretty obvious. James is very concerned with the way that the wealthy are exploiting their workers. You can pick up with me in verse four. James says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. 
So in James's context, in his church that he's preaching to, it's clear that there are wealthy people either in the church or outside of the church that are not paying their workers fairly. Why? Probably because they have the power where they won't get in trouble. So they want more money. They want a bigger bottom line. So they're just refusing to pay their workers what is due to them. And once again, James isn't making up this teaching from nowhere. He's pulling from the Old Testament. Here he's quoting Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15, which says, Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset. I love how specific that is, right? Like pay them each day before sunset because they are poor and they are counting on it. That's their daily bread, right? Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. So in this passage in Deuteronomy, God is setting up Israel's economy and he's saying, pay your workers fairly. And once again, James is going right back to this text and he is saying, you need to pay your workers fairly because if you don't, they will cry out against the Lord and you will be guilty of sin. In this way, wealth can exploit the poor, but the second way it exploits is the wealth actually exploits the rich. Because our wealth can and will testify against us on the day of judgment. Wealth doesn't only exploit the poor, but it exploits everyone involved. It can testify against us. The third and final way we'll talk about this morning that wealth um, is danger is that wealth can deceive. Wealth can deceive. And you guessed it, wealth deceives once again in two ways. The first way that um, wealth deceives is that it tricks others, right? We can deceive others. Uh, Pick up with me on verse five. James says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. So those of us who live in lives of luxury trick the rest of the world. We look like we have it all together because we have the nicest and most expensive masks that anyone can buy. But one thing I've learned from doing ministry the last like eight years is that it doesn't matter how much money you have or where on the world you live, everyone has pain. Everyone suffers, everyone goes through loss. But the thing about the wealthy is we trick others into thinking that everything is dandy, that we have everything under control when that is simply not true. But the real sinister part of wealth is that wealth doesn't only deceive others, but it deceives ourselves. Wealth deceives ourselves. And we even try to deceive God sometimes. Like reread the second part of verse five, it says, you have fattened yourself on the day of slaughter. For us, that verse may not mean that much, but imagine someone who grew up in a world where animal sacrifices happened daily or where they all worked on farms. Imagine the image of a cow fattening themselves on the day of slaughter. Like how stupid would that cow be? This cow has seen his friends and his loved ones and his family being taken to the slaughter. He's seen their lives be destroyed, but this cow keeps on eating, keeps on overstuffing himself until he can't eat anymore. 
He sees destruction that's right in front of him, but he doesn't see the danger. Wealth will do that to us. It'll deceive us, and we won't be able to see the danger right in front of us. And I realize that that luxury is really a, um, a relative term, right? It's always easy to think of someone who has a slightly more luxurious life than me, that family member who goes on slightly nicer vacations or has a little bit better of a car. But the sermon isn't about your boss or your friend or your family member. The sermon is about you. We all have these issues and we all deceive ourselves. We are living in the wealthiest point of human history, meaning that we are some of the wealthiest people to ever step on this planet. All of us, I don't care who you are, need to watch out for the dangers of wealth before it leads you to destruction. Wealth corrodes, it exploits, and it deceives. So if these are all the pitfalls for a wealthy Christian, then what is the proper way to use this tool that has been given to us? I know the story isn't officially Methodist anymore, but one of my favorite sermons um, on this matter comes from John Wesley. And we're still Wesleyan, so we can definitely talk about John Wesley. And Wesley has a, a sermon on money, and he gives us three keys on how we can use our money properly. And I think these three keys will be really helpful for us as a congregation, even if you're a Christian or not, because they show us how to have a proper relationship with wealth. So the first key that Wesley gives us is we are called to earn all we can. Now, I know after all the doom and gloom I just preached about James, this may seem counterintuitive, but let me unpack it just a little bit. When, when uh, Wesley says earn all you can, all he's saying is there's nothing wrong with good hard work as long as you aren't hurting anybody else. Like we were created to work. Work is inherently good. Some of y'all need to hear that this morning. Uh, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 said, when we were with you, we gave you this one rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So it's clear the Bible is not anti-work, but I feel like we as the church might need to redeem what work is and how we can see work in the right light. Because when I talk to young adults and friends, I see two very unhealthy extremes when it comes to work. And I rarely see people in the middle. The first group are the people who take earn all you can way too seriously, right? We know these people. They work 80 hours a week. They're gone almost every weekend. They are literally killing their bodies, their mental health, their relationships, and their spiritual life, but they keep on working because they have to earn all they can, right? They're driven by this um, desire to make more money. And that is not what Wesley is talking about. And then there's another group who absolutely hate work. And I'm sure you know people like this as well. You might be one of these people who just like hate work. And you just long for the day where there will be no more jobs, no more commutes, no more deadlines, and you can live like in an idyllic paradise, kind of like the Garden of Eden. There's one problem with that scenario. In the beginning, Adam and Eve had jobs. Did you know that? Adam and Eve were employed by God to make the earth flourish, to, to take care of the animals, to take care of the gardens. That was Adam and Eve's original job. In the order of creation, 
Work is part of the deal. So work isn't inherently bad. It's actually a good thing. It's a blessing. And God has all blessed us with the opportunity to work. So we are called to earn all we can in this life. How would that truth help change the way you approach work each and every day? Instead of viewing work as a way for you to make more money or as something you hate, what if you viewed your work as a way to honor God? I think that would change your approach. The second thing Wesley tells us is after you earn all you can, you are called to save all you can. Now there's a big difference between saving and hoarding. Some examples of hoarding are obvious. I don't know if y'all have seen the show Hoarding or Hoarders, but that can get scary. So we can all think of extremes of people who have way too much stuff. But, but let's think about us. In what ways do we hoard? In Wesley's sermon, he explicitly warns against us spending money on things we don't need, on spending money on things that our sinful flesh desires. And in his sermon, he explicitly calls out expensive clothing and useless household ornaments. And he names things like rugs and lamps. He probably would say coffee table books if he was writing in today's society. Um, my wife's glaring at me when I said that. <laughs> but, but he also calls out uh, things like food and expensive craft beer. So I got called out too, don't worry. Um, but what, what, what Wesley is really saying here is just because you can buy something doesn't mean you need to buy it. Like there's no rule of thumb here, but I think Wesley is calling us to live substantially below our means. And if I'm being honest, a lot of us don't do that. Like I'm the worst. If I can buy something, I'm gonna buy it. Like I have a stack of like 10 books on my nightstand that I'm gonna get to one day, but I keep on buying more books. Like I have to. And I had a really great PS4 but when the PS5 came out this year, I just had to get a PS5. And you know, the new, the new Madden came out this week, so I just got to get that too, because I got to play football with my friends. And then I won't even tell you how much I spent on my Yeezy 500s a couple weeks ago. I know most of you don't know what Yeezys are, and that's a good thing, because then you'd know how much money I spent on those shoes. But the point is that there are all areas in our life where we spend way too much. If we're being honest, most of us, don't save enough, and we hoard things that we don't need. And all we're doing when we buy more and more is storing our treasure and things that'll wear out, break down, and become obsolete. Why would you store your treasures in those places? As a community, how can we be people who learn to save more? Earning all you can and saving all you can leads to the pinnacle of the three rules that Wesley discussed. And the third one is to give all you can. We as Christians earn and save so we can give. If we stopped this morning just at earn all you can and save all you can, we'd be in trouble because we would look exactly like the rest of the world. But we as Christians are called to give all we can. Why? Because Jesus gave all he had for us. So if Jesus didn't withhold anything from us, how can we withhold anything from him? Because at some point in our life, we all realize that these things that we've been given, they aren't ours. God has blessed us so that we can bless others. 
And we're not called to give out of guilt. We're not called to give because of like works righteousness and believing like the more we give, the more God will bless us. No, we give because God gave to us. So we are called to give back. Because after Jesus says, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. So where is your treasure this morning? What are the things that you are investing your time and money into? If you spend all your money on boats, cars, jewelry, then your treasure isn't in heaven. It's in your social status. If you spend all your money on property and home improvements and things for your house, then your treasure isn't in heaven. Your treasure is in your home. If you save all your money for your kids one day and you're just hoping to give your kids the biggest inheritance possible, your treasure isn't in heaven, it is in your children. And the easiest way to to see where someone's heart is is to see where they are investing their money. And I know it's really easy for us to see our cars and our homes as temporary investments, but what about our kids, right? That seems like an internal investment, I'm sure when I said that saving your money for your kids is wrong, a lot of you were like, wait, this is wrong? I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Um, But let me tell you what I've seen as a student coordinator. I'm just telling you my own observations. I know all of our families love your kids so dearly. Like, I can see that. And I know a lot of families, their mindset is to make their kids as comfortable as possible and to give them everything they need so that they can live the best life. And one day you're gonna give them a ton of money so they have stuff to fall back on. But I don't think that is the best way to love your kids. The parents that I see who are making the biggest kingdom impact on their kids' lives are not the ones who save all the money for them, but the parents who show their kids how to give it all away. The parents who are willing to miss a morning at work to go serve with their kid at the homeless shelter and show them what it's like to serve. The parents who skip a vacation to the Bahamas and instead take their family on a mission trip so they can show them what the rest of the world looks like and show them how to be a blessing to others. The parents who have margin so when a need suddenly arises, you can give often and give generously. Those are the parents who make the biggest impact, the ones who give it away, not the ones who save it. And in doing this, sure, these families may miss out on some of the luxurious vacations, but in doing so, their kids will see what wealth is. It is just a tool that God has given us to bless others. If James's words this morning were a little harsh for you, then let me end with Paul's letter to Timothy which has an encouragement for those who are wealthy. Paul tells Timothy, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I believe most of us, including me, pursue money 
because we believe it'll give us security and satisfaction. But what Paul tells us is that our only security can truly be found in Christ and his death on the cross, which paid the weight of our sin and allows us to be redeemed. Security can only come through Jesus and enjoyment. Real satisfaction can only come from God. God will provide you with everything you need for your enjoyment. Do you believe that this morning? I know there's times in my life where I haven't believed that. I thought if I had a raise or a little bit more money, I would live a better life. But no, scripture says that God will provide all you need for your enjoyment. And I love how Paul says, by storing our treasure in heaven, by storing our hope in God, we will grab hold of the life that is truly life. I love that line, the life that is truly life, because that's what all of us are pursuing. We all want that contentment, that joy, that life of abundance, and that will never come from money. That'll only come from God. I've been all over the world and I have met some really rich rich people who are miserable and hate their lives. And I have met some of the poorest people in the world who have nothing, but they have the joy of the Lord and they taught me how to worship. Where are you storing your treasure? Because it doesn't matter how much money you have. Some of us have a little, some of us have a lot. What matters is what you do with what you have been given. How are you use your blessings to bless others? Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for this passage, even though it's convicting, God. It's convicted me this morning. I know that there are so many areas in my life where I'm selfish, where I buy things that I think I need, where I spend more and more money because I think it'll give me more security and more happiness. God, I ask you this morning that you would just convict me of the ways in which I'm greedy and the ways in which I keep my money instead of giving it to others. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would convict me. I pray your Holy Spirit would convict all of us right now, God, and show us how to better use our money to earn all we can, to save all we can, and give all we can, Lord. Because you have given us everything, how can we not give it all back to you? In Jesus' holy and perfect name, amen.